a week off it is that 90s baseball pod i am your host brandon Moore, and you can find me on twitter at brandon underscore w-a-r-n-e and joining me again after a week off for labor day you remember him as former orioles closer and journeyman reliever greg olson at g-r-e-g-g-o-l-s-o-n 30 on twitter how are we doing today we're doing well how about yourself do you have a good uh, good week off yeah so we well, week off is going to mean two different things for me today, and I'll explain why that is. So we did have a week off from the podcast, and we have messed with some new technology. It's possible people are watching us on YouTube because this is not live, of course, but I'll be putting it on YouTube and pulling the audio out and putting it on Libsyn and all that fun stuff, Google Play, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your podcast from. You'll get the audio version of this, but also um, we're going to do some video stuff. So it should be fun. It allows us to show people what our 90s baseball pod hats look like. I think I still owe you one of these. Um, You do. Cheap promotion, two for the XS Twins hats, which come in three colors, black, charcoal, and gray. So if you want those, hop into my DMs on Twitter. Now, what I mean by a week off is... So how familiar are you with the uh, Brenneman, Nick Castellanos meme? I'm not at all. So, okay. Um, I think it's Tom Brenneman because Marty's the dad, right? It's Tom's the son. Yeah. So he made yes. a very inappropriate comment on a hot mic. It got caught. He got in trouble. And while he was apologizing over the air, Nick Castellanos hit a home run. So he reads off his apology, breaks in the middle of it to call the home run, and then goes back into his apology. And so now that's a running joke on Twitter. Um, you know, I pride myself and think of myself as a man of faith as there's a drive to left by Castellanos. And so that will make it a 4 nothing game. I don't know if I'm going to be putting on this headset again. It's it's so, what's the word for it? It's, it's, it's like unbelievable you, you you almost feel like you've been tele- teleported to a, a parallel universe universe where this can't possibly be real so now people are using it as kind of a joke like um yeah you know i'm really sorry we lost today as there's a drive to the left by castellanos it's just it's a it's an online phenomenon on twitter it's it's hard to explain now what that is branched into is then this year the Royals were honoring like a, a, a purple heart, someone or other that had just passed away. And as they were reading that off, he homered again, Castellanos. So apparently now Castellanos' homers correlate with bad things happening. So on September 10th, I said, listen, if Nick Castellanos homers on the 20th anniversary of 9-11, I'm going to take a week off from Twitter. And lo and behold, he homered. On Saturday, I was at a car show with my my step uh, or my stepdad, my father-in-law's uh, 1957 Packard, a very rare car, I might add. Um, 
Yeah, he homered, and I had about a million tweets saying, well, I guess we'll see you in a week. So I am off Twitter for a week, so you're going to be in charge of all the promotion this week, Greg. All right. <laughs> it's not, not going to be that hard. Um, but yeah, so that's what I mean for a week off for me, in addition to the week off for Labor Day. We, what did we end up doing? Not a whole lot of anything. How about you? Did you guys travel? Did you stay home? What did you end up doing? We stayed home and... Uh... You know, took care of things around the house, and um, I've been teaching a class over at Auburn, so it gave me a little bit of extra time to prepare for a class. So uh, just that was it, really. Didn't do much, and nice, quiet week for the most part. But yeah, I didn't. Uh, I got to be honest, I didn't notice that you were gone from, uh, from Twitter. <laughs> uh, it's only been since Saturday uh, Saturday night, so it's been pretty quiet, which is which is okay. It's it's good for my mentals and all that too. Um, we are also thinking about getting a dog. So we've been working on kind of the, the legwork of that. So um, are you a dog guy? Okay. I am. And I um, so. yeah, our dog passed. Our dog passed about three years ago. So we haven't, uh, haven't been up to getting one and just looked at a batch of puppies that we're going to buy one. And um, so looking for a name right now for a, uh, a Bernese mountain dog that <clears throat> oh. puppy that we're getting in about two weeks. I love those. My daughter is into right Paw now, Patrol. Yeah. And they have a Bernie. A, a There's a Bernese on Paw Patrol that is um okay. his name is Rex and he's in a he his back legs are in a wheelchair. And why that is important to our family is my brother's in a wheelchair. And so that was kind of how we kind of explained that to my daughter who's four who actually started school after Labor Day. So the, the Bernese dog, though, is uh, it's the white and black and orange markings and uh, beautiful yes. dogs. So I, I'm excited for you guys to get one. We're looking at a schnoodle, which is a schnau schnauzer okay. poodle, and it's two ugly dogs creating a very cute puppy. Um, ordinarily, we do a rescue just because that's important to us. We, we rescued our cats who might make cameo appearances at times on this program. But uh, my wife's allergies don't allow us to do that. So we've been kind of choosy for something hypoallergenic. And so we're hoping for this schnoodle. It's a, it's a male who is going to get to about 25, 35 pounds, black and white. And he's the cutest thing ever, but we're waiting to hear back. So could be fun. Could be another chore on my list of things to do, which is shorter now because my daughter went back to school last week for full days. So these podcasts will be less interrupted. I don't know if it came through and you can tell me if it did, but a couple weeks ago we were doing our show. And, and again, we're doing this over zoom now instead of Skype, which to me seems a lot more interactive. I can see you, you can see me. And then too, if people want to watch on YouTube, they can, I, I don't know if they want to see my face or your face, but Hey, um, don't never say never. Uh, she ran in here and announced very loudly that she had to go to the bathroom. And so I don't know if the microphone picked it up, but it would definitely be picked up on video if it happened now. So we should have fewer of those with her at school, but I think I kept my nerve pretty good, but I think that was the strike episode. So um, she was not on strike. She was coming in to cross the picket line to go to the bathroom. So anyway, uh, great. long story, even longer. Uh, we should thank some of our sponsors. So uh, if I had been thinking, I would have come in here with my Ipare mug. I only have one. They sent me two, 
and I was talking to my wife on the phone and I dropped my other one and I thought it was plastic. It was very much not plastic. So it's clear coffee mug. It's just kind of fun. If you go on Instagram, there's a picture of me using it with my daughter. They have reasonably priced trendy kitchenware. If you go on there with the promo code 10 T 90 BP 10, you get 10% off your order. Now that might be hard to remember, but it is just the number 10 before and after T 90 BP for that nineties baseball pod. I tried to come up with something shorter. Um, love baseball, love ball, T 90 BP, and none of those would trigger. So we had to go another route. Anyhow, Epare, that's E-P-A-R-E.com. Check them out. Again, promo code 10, T90BP10. Uh, if you check out symbol.app, that's a stock market for sports. You can use the promo code Bender, as in Greg Olson had one of Major League Baseball's best all-time curveballs, Bender. Uh, gets you a free week of Symbol Gold. Haven't tried that out yet. I got to get over there and do that. But it sounds like it's a lot of fun. Um, Hinterland MN is a coffee roaster in the Twin Cities. You get 10% off coffee roasted freshly every week if you subscribe for a monthly subscription. Um, yep, Maple Grove, Minnesota. Josh Nelson's my guy. Great coffee you can get from there. Uh, Three-star sports cards. I, I still have been, to my wife's chagrin, collecting sports cards off Twitter and off little different things here or there. So I'm getting into trouble with how I'm spending my budget. But three-star sports cards, you can either go to Little Canada on Rice Street, you can go to Bloomington on Lindale or online, threestarsportscards.com. I don't know. Could they get you back into the card collecting uh, trade if you wanted right now? Could, do you think you could get back into it? Or are you just not really, not really at that place right now? I'm not in that place right now. Um, not in that place of collecting stuff anymore. And also. Understandable. Uh, Understandable. Love, love the baseball cards. Just. Kind of be yeah, past past it, I think. Yeah, well, a little bit for now. If we ask my wife too, I'm I'm past it too. So, and then uh, <laughs> oh, finally, I'm, so I'm wearing a humility chain on video today. This is the red one that I had custom made because I asked for it. But humility chains on Etsy. You just go to Etsy.com/slash humility chains or Google them. Royce Lewis's mom Cindy makes these. I think they look stylish and good, and they're affordable. I think this one was thirty bucks. Um, but a percentage of the proceeds go to Nigu Foundation, which helps with uh, pediatric cancer. So kids fighting cancer. And I think we can all get behind wanting to help that out. So um, 20 different styles and uh, there's bracelets, there's chains. I'm wearing my uh, my black one here, but um, they don't sell the red one yet, I don't think, or maybe they do. But I have a black one. I have a white one. I have a gold one. I have one with a cross. I have one without a cross. Um, trying to get them to sell purple ones. You know, we talked about the Vikings yesterday when we did our first test call, we're not going to go into that, but um, I would like to get a purple one and still represent my first place. Owen one Minnesota Vikings, because everybody in the North lost yesterday. Uh, who's your team. I, I don't remember what you said yesterday when you were talking about NFL. Well, you know, in fantasy football is taken, taken my teams. I grew up, grew up a Vikings fan because uh, oh, Omaha, Nebraska, we, you know, it was either that or the chiefs. So I, I grew up watching Fran Tarkington, which is way before your time. Uh, um, then when I went to Baltimore, we didn't have the Ravens and the Colts had left. So I got to know a couple of Redskins through some charity events and uh, followed the Redskins through the early to mid-90s. And those guys were the dudes for uh, for a little while, won a world championship. And then um, 
after that, man, fantasy football started and it's been done. I don't, I don't care about any teams. Last night I was just watching, waiting for Allen Robinson just to make just a couple oh. catches. It's been great. So that was uh, that was my night. wasn't rooting for anybody. Just Allen Robinson to make a couple catches. It's it's nice to be able to watch. I mean, you still live and die with your individual players, I think. Um, but it's uh, you know, I was curious to see how Justin Fields would play, especially because the Vikings just missed getting to select him and their first round pick didn't play, but I've definitely drifted to a point where I don't live and die with each game. It's been a while since that was the case for me with the Vikings, which is probably good for my blood pressure and my, um, my waistline. But yeah, I, I was glad to see it back, but at the same time too, baseball is where it's at for me. Um, last thing, uh, again, uh, we did show the hats. If you want to get those DM me on Twitter, check out our Patreon, patreon.com slash that nineties baseball pod different dollar levels. There's three, five, 10 and $25. Each of them comes with a free subscription to access twins, uh, producer credit on the show. If we can figure out this zoom thing a little more, we could probably do members only zooms where they can just ask you questions and I can watch. Cause I can't imagine I'm going to have any information for them, but um, lots of fun stuff on there. I'd love people to check that out. We also got hats. Uh, we're going to work on some autographed baseballs, autographed baseball cards and all that stuff. But again, so uh, patreon.com slash that 90s baseball pod. All of that aside, wh- yesterday I texted you when I was in church, which um, probably shouldn't <laughs> cop to over the air. But uh, I guess the Holy Spirit just inspired me to say, hey, uh, let's talk about what a day in the life of Greg Olson was like when he was closing for Baltimore in uh, 1989. I didn't tell you 1989, but 1989 would have been the first year you were a closer. And in fact, you had zero saves before then. Um, And then some of your first few saves were not how we see saves come about today. And your usage was a little different. And there were a couple other guys who got saves. So I think we're going to just kind of go a deep dive into what a day looked like for you. We'll, We'll break down a couple different saves because I want to talk about your first one that would be pretty traditional with how you would have been used if you were a closer today. Um, your first save, if I'm not an idiot, and that's never off the table, was of the three-inning three, uh, three inning variety, I think, in a 12-4 game. And so that's a rule people might not know, that if you um, pitch more than an inning, you can get a save in games that are not three runs or uh, or less, or four runs with uh, bases loaded and a runner in scoring, because or uh, on deck batter sorry bases loaded runner on deck or batter on deck representing the winning run whatever four runs can be in play but you can't put yourself into that situation we'll, we'll break down all that um i, I want to go back to the start though so you did not close in the sense of getting a save in 1988 and you, you did you didn't really I, you pitch that much either but um to what extent were teams, managers, whatever, um, married to the idea of a closer pitching for saves. And again, if people are not watching on our video here, uh, they're not going to see me doing the quote sign, but obviously the role has evolved over the last 30 plus years. You know, you had quite a few saves where you got more than three outs. Um, To what extent coming out of spring training, were you viewed as a closer or a fireman or in the mix? What did that look like coming out of your, I, I suppose, your first spring training and coming north? 
Oh yeah. The first spring training, I, I was, you know, hoping to make the team yep. and, um, you know, obviously encouraged to be there. So got through and got started disappointed that I didn't get to pitch opening day. And it was a great two to one win over Boston. And then we start going a little bit and I, I kind of get myself in the mix. Mark Williamson was actually um, kind of deemed our closer to begin the season in 88. I, when I got called up in September for my 10 appearances, Tom Needenfuhrer was there and Needenfuhrer had a, Long track record of being a, a closer in the National League, mostly with the Dodgers, but um, had been a closer for a little while. So when I got there, there was, you know, not a, not a place for me. He left via free agency. And honestly, we weren't supposed to be very good in 1989. Other than Cal Ripken, we we had traded Eddie Murray, Fred Lynn, uh, Needon Fuhrer. I could run through a, little, a couple more, but, you know, all you need to really know is Eddie Murray. And so we were in a rebuilding year. Um, Mark Williamson, who was probably had three or f- three years in the big leagues at that point, was kind of named the closer just because he had the most experience in the bullpen. And so at the beginning of the season, it was just kind of a free for all. Williamson was closing. I was in the mix somewhere, you know, six, seven, eight. And so the game that you're talking about in Boston, I had started, I, I struggled a little bit in a, in a couple games in Minnesota. And uh, came in in Boston in the sixth inning, and that was my that was to date my longest career outing was three and a third, and um, that remained that way for all fourteen years. So came in, um, got an out in the sixth, and we were winning five to four. So it was it was a full on game on, and I believe in the top of the ninth we might have opened it up with six seven runs. And um, and blew it open, but it was it was a tight game for our seven, you know, the seventh and eighth innings. So it was it was an it was an earned save. It just ended up being, you know, by the time I was out there for the bottom of the ninth, there wasn't much left to do. So if you'd if you'd come in with the team up 12-4, I think that still would have been a save, though, with nine, uh, 10 outs. Yeah, because they they kind of open it up. In fact, I think the twins won a game like. 28 to 12 one time, but there was a save because the reliever pitched five innings because the other guy got blown up. Um, I could be remembering that wrong, but it did. It's not just strictly um, pitching the ninth inning or, or a, a narrow band of runs between the two. Uh, so a couple things. So when you're a, when you're a team not expected to contend, there's probably not much incentive to name a closer because you're, you get guys just kind of finding their way in the big leagues as opposed to, uh, you know, if you're going to win 70 games, is someone going to save 35 of them, 25 of them, 15? You don't really care. Um, maybe there's a financial aspect with arbitration. We won't really get into that. But what was it a big deal? I think it was Frank Robinson to name a closer or was it just kind of, you know, this is how we're going to start, but it's going to be adaptable. How, how was the communication from Frank? when it came to the roles that each of you were going to play in that bullpen and not only from opening day, but letting you know it could and probably would evolve quite quickly. You know, I didn't, uh, golly, I don't know if Frank ever announced who was going to be closing those games. And, um, you know, it was assumed it was Mark Williamson. We had a, a guy named Kevin Hickey who came over from the White Sox. We had a guy, Brian Holton, who, was a reliever that came over in the Eddie Murray trade. So we had we had guys that had a couple of years. Nobody had been, 
no, I don't think anybody really would say that they had the stuff to be the, the back end guy. And like I said, when you're rebuilding and you got a whole bunch of who knows what we got in the bullpens, you're not, you're not going to name a closer until somebody steps out. And, um, I don't think I really even, I, I don't think I stepped into the role until probably close to the first of June. It was just, you know, got a shot here, got a shot there, started to roll a little bit through May. And, you know, I don't, I don't remember him ever going, okay, you're my closer. It was just, um, just kind of one of those situations where, you know, at the end of the game, I, I assumed it was me. And uh, I think I told the story in one of the games about Frank Robinson and we had a huge fog game against the Yankees and Mark Williamson ended up coming in. We were winning two to one in the top of the ninth and the fog had rolled in to the point where anything in the air is completely lost. It's like play. It was like playing, you know, in the Metrodome in the dark, you had no shot of seeing the ball up in the air. And, um, so Mark Williamson gives up a, a mediocre fly ball to left field where a left fielder never saw it lands behind him. They score two runs on Williamson. We lose three to two. And in my infinite wisdom of being a 22 year old that had closed probably five games in his life, walked into Frank Robinson's office and, and basically said to Frank, I don't understand. That was, that was my game. What, why didn't you put me in? And, uh, he was great about it. Really was, you know, didn't air me out, which he easily could have. And uh, yeah, you lived to tell about coach, it. Yeah, and my pitching coach kind of Al Jackson kind of got close to airing me out by just letting me know that it, that was way out of line. And who the hell do I think I am? You know, kind of down that line where it was let me know that you know, I had way stepped over my boundary. Well, a lot of times, too, um, I think roles and that sort of thing in baseball go unsaid in the sense that you just kind of know, you know, if a guy if a guy's playing shortstop five days a week, at some point, he just assumes he's the starting shortstop. You know, it's it's not necessarily these things that need to be said. At what point, though? I mean, so you work at the Metrodome uh, on the seventh and it, it doesn't go well, as you said. Then you work the eighth, you just get one out, uh, sixth, then the 14th, which we don't see much these days. You got your save in the sixth, 10th, seventh, seventh. You know, you're not really working the ninth until your uh, your first save, save, like we would recognize them comes in late April. It's a two inning save, four strikeouts. So you're a man ahead of your time in that respect. At what point did it become a mindset for you? Like, hey, this could be my role as opposed to, when you felt it actually was like, did you have that seed planted pretty early or did it just kind of, you know, come up on you? Like, Whoa, I guess I'm maybe the closer now. Um, well, you know, I'll, I'll give you a, a, a piece there. There, there is, I, I feel like there's a big aspect of, of people knowing what their role is and what the situation is. And that way you're not surprised. And I, 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 I I guess I'll say this because it's our show. It's my, my year with the Braves, you know, I went from a bullpen of everybody knowing what their situation is, which I found important because if, you know, I wanted to wake up, I wanted to get to the ballpark. I wanted to know that in the seventh inning, I have the ninth or I, I, I had, you know, a, a blow up situation in the eighth. If, if I needed to come in, it was important for me to know. So I was mentally ready when that phone rang. 
And I went to the Braves in 94. And my best example is the phone would ring in the seventh or eighth inning and three or four guys would take off their coats, which means nobody knew what they were doing. Nobody was completely and utterly mentally prepared for that situation. And it was just, it was difficult. It was difficult to understand. And so, you know, moving back to that Oakland game, which if, if you ask anybody in Baltimore, they would say that was my coming out party. Um, I came in, I was setting up Williamson again. So I came in through the eighth and this was, you know, one of the best teams in, in the game and cruised through the, the eight, nine, one, something like that. Got a strikeout, weak ground ball, weak pop up, you know, cruised through the eighth and we're winning two to one. And um, so I'm sitting in the dugout and Mark Williamson's kind of lightly playing catch down in the bullpen. And I'm just sitting there and nobody says a word to me. And usually, you know, tradition is when a guy's done, you know, one of the coaches, the manager, the pitching coach come over, pat him on the shoulder. Great job. You know, you're done. And you either stay out there and watch the ninth inning or you, you go on up and, and get a milk and start icing down. And, um, so nobody comes over to me. So I'm just sitting in the dugout in Oakland and I'm kind of like looking around going, am I in? Am I not in? What's Williamson doing? And finally inning ends and I just kind of walked up to the pitching coach and I was like, am I still in? Because I knew coming up was like the meat of their order, two, three, four. And he just like, yeah, you're still in. I'm going, okay. And that was more to the situation of not knowing your role. So I'm kind of just sitting in the dugout flummoxed. And uh, walked out and ended up striking out the side in the ninth with um, Dave Henderson, Dave Parker, and Mark McGuire. And like I said, that was, you know, everybody in Baltimore remembers that day and what they were doing and why it, it was, it's, I don't know, it's kind of a bizarre thing where if you went and asked somebody, you know, what my best game was, everybody to a person will go, you know, first save in Oakland. Yeah, that that's incredible. Your recollection of that is right on. And I wonder, too, if there was something to the idea that you didn't spend that half inning thinking about how you'd attack that trio of guys or, you know, I think it's a it's a two way street. Either you can psych yourself out or you can psych yourself up. And another aspect to that is is a first time guy getting set up for an end of game save. Maybe you don't know how you'll feel about that until you're dropped in that end of the pool. Then again, if you've closed in the minors or in college or, you know, you've been pitching your whole life, maybe you already know your mentality, I guess is I'm curious how you felt about not knowing. I mean, you kind of told us, but um, not knowing you were going to go in there and face those guys. Did it work to your advantage? Did it work to your disadvantage? Again, I know you struck them all out. So you'd be, tendency would say advantage, but just because you struck all three out doesn't mean you are mentally in a good place to pitch, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, it makes perfect sense. And that was what I was, you know, trying to explain how important it was as a closer, at least for me to sit there in the seventh inning and get away from everybody and go to, you know, as quiet a spot as you can get to in a bullpen and to start running through, you know, who might be coming up in the ninth, Who's on, you know, who's, who, ha, who, who's going to pinch hit, you know, if I'm on the bottom of the order, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the twins always had Randy Bush. So you right. knew, you know, if I got to eight or nine, I'm going to see Bush at some point. Mm 
And then you start running through how you want to face him or, you know, every team had a guy. So you're running through, okay, where's he at? He hasn't pinched hit. So I'll probably see him if I'm at the bottom. And it was, I, 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 I felt like it was important for me to be prepared in that, in that way. Um, did it help me in this game? I don't think, I don't think I had gotten to the point where I, I, I was still relying on what the catcher was calling. So I hadn't realized what I was doing, what I wanted to do versus hitters and trying to figure out how to diagnose what they were doing. Cause first time around, they don't know me. I don't know them. And it's kind of a, you know, let's dance. And um, I was lucky enough. I had, I, I felt comfortable because I had Mickey Tettleton who had been with the A's, I think in 87. So I felt comfortable that he knew most of the hitters and he was behind the plate. And so whatever finger he put down, I completely went with. And you, that you was, go ahead. Well, I mean, I, no, no. I, I, do you, I just want to know if you subscribe to the idea that the pitcher has the advantage the first time you face a hitter. I, it, to me, it seems intuitive, but there's a lot of things I miss when I think about baseball, if I'm being honest. Um, yeah, I, I feel like he does. Because, you know, guys, the hitters see pitchers are, you know, differently. And there might be some things that, you know, they're not picking up the ball out of the hand real well, or they don't see me real well. They just, you know, I got a good breaking ball, so they haven't seen it before. So they don't know where it starts and what they're looking for. So I think there is an advantage first time around. Um Nowadays, with all the, the video footage and everything else, I think that advantage has gotten quite a bit lessened, you know, where it's it's easier to watch guys on tape and, and get viewpoints of what they're doing. And, and um, so I think that's changed the game quite a bit where it might be closer to equal footing. So you come out of that game against Oakland and how much are you chomping at the bit metaphorically to get your next save opportunity um man that was one of those games that you could you could just retire on and call it a call it a week and then just be done you know it was one of those where yeah you wanted to jump back out there and show you you could do it it um funny thing was and it's this was the funny part of that game was so I get Dave Henderson to strike out and Dave Parker comes up and Dave Parker is absolutely one of the largest humans has probably ever graced the baseball field. Uh, I, I'll go nicely six foot six, 260. I mean, the dude is huge in the batter's spot. I mean, he, he made McGuire look small. All right, so we'll just put it that way. So yeah. Mickey Tettleton has been played against him or, or with him. I don't think he played with him. but So Tettleton, I got one out. Parker comes up, and Tettleton gives me, uh, you know, which is this that sign. So I'm doing, he flips his thumb and then tilts it up and in and where, you know, where I came from and here in Auburn, Alabama, that means to, to buzz the tower, to give him a bow tie, to flip him. Mm -hmm. And I'm kind of standing on the mound going, wow, he wants me to flip Dave Parker. All right. Wow. I was just like, and Mick, Mickey was a big dude. And um, I was just kind of going, all right, let's see what we got. And I mean, it was absolutely the perfect bow tie right under Dave Parker's neck. And 
you know, <laughs> knocked, knocked his head back. And, and he kind of sat there and he literally turned in the batter's box and had a hand on his hip. And he's looking at me like, are you serious? Okay, rookie. Yeah, exactly that. And I'm going, all right, well, he's not running at me. So Mickey should be able to catch him if he starts now. <laughs> yeah. And he, he, he never comes. And after that, I proceeded to throw a whole bunch of curveballs. It kind of started, you know, like right in here and then broke down. And um, I, I mean, he, I think he might've got one hit in his career off of me. And I, I really kind of attributed it to that first announcement of, hi, Mr. Parker, my name is Greg Olson, and I'm not afraid to throw under your neck. So that was kind of one of the, my favorite stories from that game of just, all right, well, you know what? That's what he's calling, and that's what we're going to do. And my bodyguard, Mickey Tettleton, will escort you out. <laughs> yeah, and I had, I had a big shortstop, too, so I figured, you yeah. know. I don't think people I realize might, how I big Cal be... was. Oh, man, yeah. Terrifying. Yeah, so we had the uh, – it would, it would have been interesting. So I plant that seed because you didn't get another save for exactly a month. A month. <laughs> April 26th to right. May 26th. You get your third save. It's against Cleveland. Two innings, uh, three strikeouts again. Strikeouts were a big part of your game, which I've, I obviously appreciate as a person who analyzes baseball now. Um, strikeouts are everywhere. Um, then, uh, four days later you do all back-to-back saves against the Rangers. So the first one is, uh, two thirds of an inning, two strikeouts. Uh, it's a four run game. I can click in there, but I'm going to just imagine that you probably came into a real fire situation because for that to be a save, it probably had to be bases loaded or, or tying run on deck. Um, anything come to mind from that one? You, uh, 11 pitches, eight strikes. You really went in there and just kind of chopped it up. And we'll talk about your next save because I want to break that one down in a little more depth. But um, they came pretty fast and furious after that. There's there's little denying that. I think that, but like you said, um, six saves in June. Uh, By by June 1, it was pretty well established that you were going to be the guy back door or at least one of the guys. Yeah, I I don't remember a whole lot, you know, that uh, that was just a fun time to be an Oriole. You know, we were, we were playing well. We Like I said, we were supposed to be the, you know, last in the AL East and when there was no AL or NL Central. That's so, like ninth place, isn't it, or seventh place? Eighth place? Yeah, it's something. like seventh or eighth place, yeah. Um, Insane. And so, we, I mean, we were behind everybody, hypothetically. So, it was – we were having a lot of fun and playing well. And, uh, you know, I don't – I didn't have any expectations coming into the season. You're in, you're in the major leagues and you're in a bullpen and it's like, all right, yeah, we're winning. Well, why, why can't we win? And then, well, you know, Greg, what do you think you're getting saves? And I'm like, well, who says I'm not supposed to, right. You know, it's just kind of one of those where uh, the ignorance is bliss comment seems to kind of fit the, fit the mold a little bit, you know, I mean, right. I'm too young and too stupid to realize I'm not supposed to be doing this. So. Well, kind of like talking to Frank Robinson. Yeah. Kind of like going into Frank <laughs> Robinson's office and going, that was my game. Why didn't you let me pitch? Oof, I still can't believe you survived that. I'm glad you did because we've got some good, uh, good stuff here. So the first, your fifth big league save is the first one that I would consider like a very obvious usage pattern with today's game. Uh, Baltimore at uh, actually versus Texas, Texas would have been in 
Baltimore and you threw one inning, one strikeout, uh, three run lead. So what I want to do is go back and kind of put myself or yourself in your shoes, myself in the shoes of, uh, maybe your pitching coach, Al Jackson. Uh, I don't know, but what I want to do is in the ninth inning, I believe you went eight, nine, one. So it was, uh, Steve Buchel, Jim Sunberg, and then back to the top and Cecil Espy. Now, a three-run save versus a one-run save we'll get into in terms of the differences because I'm sure uh, psychologically you have to get yourself psyched up, but you're going to approach it differently. Um, the reason I want to do this, though, is I don't think Steve Buchel was the Steve Buchel we maybe saw later in his career with the Cubs where he was maybe a little more offensively accomplished. I could be remembering wrong, but um, you got through those three guys quickly, and it was good because – after that, you would have faced uh, Scott Fletcher, who was, you know, he wasn't playing that well, but he could get on base. And then it was like the guys, Rafael Palmero, Ruben Sierra, Julio Franco. So, um, you know, pardon the familiarity, but if you, uh, if you dicked around with those first three guys, you were going to be in trouble. But at the same time, too, if you lay a fastball into Steve Buchel or Jim Sundberg, they're going to punish you as well. Uh, Buchel at the time had a 751 OPS and Sundberg 818. Uh, Sunberg had three hits that night. So there are so many layers to break down here. In addition to the fact that uh, all of Texas's runs came in one inning. So you knew they were capable of blowing up a crooked inning. So again, maybe this would be different if you came in three years later and had, uh, you know, let's say 70 saves under your belt. But in this case too, you're coming in, you're still pretty fresh as a closer, but you know, if you get, in any hot water with three, these three hitters, I guess has to be hit for Jeff Kunkel. So that's important to note. Um, you could be in trouble multiple different ways, depending on how you attack them. And, uh, you know, it's easy to diagnose after the fact, like if I, if I see you pitch and, uh, you walk Buchel Sunberg does something, you know, and all of a sudden you've got the tying run, on or at the plate in Palmero, I'm going to look back and say, you should have done that differently. Well, you don't have that luxury when you start the inning. So that's my long, long, long way of asking you when you come out of that bullpen door or on that bullpen car, I don't know if they drove bullpen cars back then. Um, what, uh, when do you, what, what are you thinking when, uh, when Steve Buchel is announced and steps up, are you attack? Are you be smart? Are you, I know who's coming up after him, where's your mind at? Um, that's good. I mean, it really, that really is a good question. There, there is a, a, a mild difference between a, a one and a three run lead. I mean, a three run right. lead is like, and I think I blew one of them in my career. It's, it's, a, it's, it's an epic for me, a screw up. Yeah. If I, if I, I mean, I walked in and I got to admit after a little bit, you know, maybe my second, third year, I wasn't as engaged as I was with a one-one lead. That, mm -hmm. At this point, that we're talking about that night, it's still all fresh and new, and um, I'm in full attack mode. So I went through most of my career, at least as a closer, of whatever I could do to get ahead, and that was then that would open up for me to throw a curveball right. and finish the at bat. So. Um, but all those, it was just like, okay, I got to get strike one. Mm -hmm. And so I, I, I'm sure I attacked Bouchelle and I'm sure I attacked Sunberg 
and probably Espy with all fastballs unless, you know, my catcher, which might have been Melbourne, might have been Tettleton. Let's pull it up um, here. Tettleton that night. It, and, you know, and, and he was he was a big get ahead guy for me. And so it was it was it was probably all fastballs early going if you want it. And there was there was a there was not every team, but most of the teams at that point were playing baseball the right way, which was saying, which is me saying we're at the bottom of the order. I'm the leadoff guy in the ninth inning and we're down three runs. I can't hit a three run home run with nobody on base so i'm taking a pitch and you know letting him you know hopefully walk me or yep. get behind you know so they're most of the teams would take a strike so then other than uh, with a one run lead so here i am and doing exactly what i need to do which is strike one so i can throw curveballs from there and they're allowing me to have strike one so it's kind of one of those where it's more to my benefit that you're taking the first strike Right. You know, you go back and I don't, you're too young, but Eckersley was Eckersley walked three or four guys a year. It drove me absolutely nuts when our guys would take strike one. Cause I'm like, he doesn't walk anybody. He's not going to, you're, you're not going to get a good pitch to hit behind in the count. Right. You know, he's not going to walk you. So I'm like, why are you giving him a gift of, catching a piece of the plate when now all he's going to start doing is, you know, like Greg Maddox or Glavin just start thinning down to corners. So it doesn't make sense for me. I walked almost 50 guys at my, my rookie year. And, you know, I was walking a guy every two innings, give or take. And uh, that makes a little bit more sense for you guys to take a strike. Cause I'm going to mm-hmm. walk somebody at some point. Yeah. Yeah. No, no question about that. Um, brief aside, uh, what did you think about pitching to a tall catcher or a big catcher like Tettleton versus maybe some smaller guys? Because I've heard some pitchers say they don't like it. And now again, it's, um, you know, now in, in the day where days where, you know, quote unquote framing and how the umpire sees the pitch uh, that can be affected based on the height of the catcher. But uh, how did you like throwing to a big catcher versus a smaller catcher? You know, I, I, got, I guess I got used to throwing to big catchers. Tettleton was big. Bob Melvin was Bob Melvin was six foot four. Jamie Cork was big. Um, Chris Hoyles was a big man, and so I, I mean, I got used to it. I don't. My only only thing I really wanted out of you as a catcher was to move quietly to the spot that you were going. Mm-hmm. So if I'm throwing a fastball down and away, quietly get over there. And get there by the time that my leg starts coming up, get there so that my eyes are on a target and that target doesn't move. Right. If you're moving all over the box late, you're moving my target. And um, now I'm going to have problems. Yeah, I, I can see that being uh, the case. Uh, I do want to ask you, too. So uh, it looks as though your first 15 saves went off without a hitch. First blown save is in California. Uh, you guys still win, or against California, sorry, uh, at home. Um, but first 15 in a row, was uh, – did you have anything, like, mentally you feel when you blow that first save, or is it just kind of like, well, it was going to happen eventually, you know? Uh, um, even, like you said, Eckersley or, or Bruce Sutter or any of, any of the great relievers of that era, Lee Smith, they blow saves too. What, what was kind of your mind frame after that 
and certainly it was probably affected by the fact that you guys still won. That helped it. That helped my mind yeah. frame. But I was, you know, um, I think I walked somebody, bunted him to second, and then I broke a bat into left field and it, you know, fell in front. And thankfully we, you know, came back in the bottom of the ninth. Um, I don't remember if it was the Devereaux home run or double down the line. And the only reason I remember that is because uh, the Orioles put out a video that that 89 season was so um, fun to watch for everybody, I guess. Mm -hmm. So I remember, I remember blowing the save and then, you know, on the video, it was one of the two plays and back to back nights we won in the ninth. And uh, it was, no, it was, it was hard for me to, to fail. I, I took a win away from somebody and um Right. That, that, I don't know if that started the slide as much as I started, you know, tipping my pitches when I went down to we went to Kansas City and then Oakland. And I, we went on a, a road trip of where I was completely unsuccessful and um, kind of got moved out of that job that we've been talking about. Well, this one was a Ripken walk and a Tettleton double. So looks like he probably rolled it over the bag and Ripken streaked home. Uh, exactly. All that damage done against Willie Frazier in the span of about uh, seven pitches. So that, that was a quick one, but it was a little, the 11th inning. So um, they made you hang around for a while on that one. But um, yeah, it, it, so it, it wasn't what caused you to spiral, but it was part of it. Would you say like, I mean, obviously one blown save is not going to be um, the undoing of any closer ever, maybe more so for a rookie than anything, but uh, yeah, your next, Looks like four of your next five were uh, were, were unsuccessful, if I want to put it um, diplomatically. Oh yeah, no, I I um, and I remember vividly you know, tipping my pitches, and I got beat around in Kansas City. I think I got beat around in Oakland. It was a um, it was a bad road trip, and and I kind of took the team down with me mm -hmm. because uh, it seemed like every game I blew, we lost which makes everything much worse. So sent, uh, sent the Orioles into a little tailspin with my tailspin. There was never a time though, where you thought you might get sent down or anything. I mean, your numbers were still very good. Uh, you, you were still pretty safe in your roster spot, of course. Yeah, it was just, you know, kind of, I don't know if I got away from what I was doing and, and a lot of theories were walking around that the league had figured me out. And so there's, uh, a lot of mental exercises going around my mind of, of, okay, what is it? Is it me? You know, and I, I knew I wasn't making very good pitches. My breaking ball was elevated. And, and then to find out that I'm tipping it as well, um, kind of worst case scenario. But yeah, there's a lot of mental exercises of going is, you know, the league really figure me out. What, um, you know, what do we do? How do I fix this? And how do I get out of it? How do those struggles affect you at 22 versus 32 or 23 versus 33? Um, because they're obviously different. The fact that you're still there is a huge deal. Yeah. I mean, it helps, but it's, it, it doesn't, it, I don't, I don't, I never found them different. I mean, I might be smarter at 32. I might be more, more able to fix myself at 32 rather than trying to fix myself and looking for a lot of help at 22, you know, so the pitching coach, I'd be asking Cal, I'd be asking Frank, I'd be talking to my catchers, trying to go, okay, what are we doing? Where are we at here? What's going on? You know, my fellow pitchers at 32, I'm more likely to 
come to the conclusion a little bit quicker with a lot less help. Did, uh, so you, you worked as a closer, you worked as a middle reliever, you worked as a setup guy, kind of ran the gamut as far as what relievers did. Um, and you actually, you know, you righted the ship and got back on it with, uh, I think, 27 saves that year. Is, is the roller coaster more severe as a closer than it is as a reliever? Or, I, I mean, I think it probably kind of obviously is, but I'm still asking from a place of ignorance. Um, is it a bumpier roller coaster or is it help that the role is more stable in the sense that you know when you pitch and when you won't, that it kind of mitigates that a little bit, if, if that makes sense? Yeah, it does. Um, man, it, it felt like the roller coaster was always the same. You know, the, the ups were great. The downs were bad. Um, the downs seemed like they lasted a lot longer than the ups. And it, I, I think it might be worse because the downs, when you're a closer, the downs are epic. You know, yeah. you're, you're costing – you might cost the team a game in the seventh, but they at least got two more bats, maybe three more bats. Man, in the ninth inning, there's nothing else. And, you know, I, I hate to count how many times I've walked off the field after screwing it up. But, um, you know, that that makes it worse because there's nothing else. Your team had done everything it could to put you in the lead. And then within, you know, under three outs, you've spun it around and, and had your team walking off the field. So what, what do you think about – the role of a closer in the sense of uh, how it's evolved because it's, it's kind of come and gone and come and gone. Some teams use a committee. Some teams use a guy who is the de facto fireman, but in the seventh inning, he might come in and face John Carlos Stanton, Aaron judge and whoever, because that those guys might not be up in the ninth when you want your big guy in there. Uh, let, let's put yourself in the shoes of any big league manager right now. And how would you want to use the closer role in, uh, in the most effective way or efficient way, knowing what you know now as someone who, you, who filled the role for a long time? I, I, I would leave it the way, you know, the, the closer being the ninth inning guy. I, I appreciate, you know, and this is before your time, Jeff Brantley would, did, did that with the Giants in the, in the late 80s, early 90s of where, you know, it was um, – Come in the seventh if he was needed in the seventh, sixth, eighth. Whenever he was needed, he'd come in, do that job, and then that would be it. And a lot of people appreciated him doing that. I just feel like he better, you better have somebody else that's just as good at it coming in the ninth inning because that lasts – the last three outs are hard to get. It um, Having a, a, a solid guy back there is, is like an anchor. Mm-hmm. you know, and you just kind of keep moving up that way. So everybody's relying on the anchor. And I think of, you know, the Yankees with Rivera and, you know, their eighth inning guys were always really good. Well, they were always really good because he's behind them, you know, right. and it was the same, same with Eckersley. And, and, you know, when I was in Kansas city and I had Jeff Montgomery behind me, it was like, well, you know what? I, I can be a little bit looser. I can be a little bit more relaxed because I got a total dude behind me that, that, you know, if needed, he'll come and bail me out, you know? And so it kind of works backwards where now I'm, I'm a dude in the eighth inning and I'm bailing out the seventh inning guy. Cause he's comfortable that I'm here, you know? So that's the way I kind of looked at it. And I felt like, you know, most of the, the teams that I played on were successful with 
one guy or, you know, if you got the, the, the nasty boys of the Reds, maybe in, in 1991, where it was Charlton, Franco, Dibble, and those guys were kind of rotating it around. If everybody's all right with that, then go on and have it. Uh, so if you're you're in the bullpen watching the game and you're facing Oakland and Mark McGuire is hitting in the sixth, seventh inning, you can kind of imagine a scenario where you'd see him in the ninth. Are you thinking about it at that point? Or uh, at what point are you kind of locking it in versus trying to stay loose? And how hard is it to snap to attention that way? Because um, I, I can't imagine as a closer, you can stay locked in all nine. That to me just doesn't seem like it would be productive. Uh, I don't think you can. Um, yeah. I think, uh, like I said, I, I, but the, the top of the seventh, I would, you know, walk away from everybody and go sit in a corner, or go find a, go find a place to watch the game, check the scoreboard out. And, and was this every game or, or only close games? Uh, it was really only close games, you know, okay. but I mean, that was one or two runs either way, you know, three or four runs if we were winning. I mean, that it, it encapsulated mm -hmm. a good seven, a seven run gamut. Yep. You know, so if we're up eight to nothing in the six, yeah, I'm probably not going to go lock in over there. Um, but my, you know what, my, it was funny. My, my stomach would let me know. I would start getting butterflies when you know, you know, about an hour, about an hour prior to my engagement, I would start getting butterflies. And so my body kind of let me know that, you know what, why don't you go over and just get it, get away from everybody and, and shut it down and start locking in on what's going on. And then if, you know, it comes up in the ninth inning and we're up eight or nine runs, then, my body lets me know, hey, you know what? We're not getting into this thing unless some graphic happens, and you'll see that one coming from a mile away. So mm -hmm. that was what I always had to do. That was why I always felt it was really important to uh, have a set role. Well, we all know how that season ended. You won the rookie of the year, obviously got things going in the positive direction. How different was spring training 1990 going in with a firm role of closing? I'm, I'm assuming because I wasn't there and I was four years old, um, not to put you on the spot age-wise, but, uh, yeah, right. Uh, it probably was a different experience knowing, or at least knowing what you had done and what you were capable of and what you might be expected to do. Uh, a lot of those things falling in line, I, it kind of reminds me of a bullpen where, um, you know, everything trickles from the closer. If you've got a good closer, you don't have to force your eighth guy into the ninth, seventh into the eighth. Um, you know, foundation matters in a bullpen, just like it does a house, everything, stands up from the base. Uh, so going into spring training, 1990 was the vibe for you different. And again, too, I'm sure it would be, I guess, as a second year player too, but from a role standpoint, um, you know, what changed for you between those two years? You know, I, I, it was, I had the rare situation of being able to work on my game and not worry about, you know, me not getting guys out in spring training or what the day-to-day -day grind of it was. It was strictly, and they didn't turn me loose, you know, where they, I was on my own, but it was, it was, okay, you know, I'd like to work on this. I'd like to get better at this. I'd like to fix this. And it became, um, I mean, it was a lot of fun, you right. know, I didn't do, I didn't do very well in spring training because I, I kind of knew I had a job and that was another Frank Robinson conversation where, He's like, will you please get somebody out before we break camp? Um, 
So I wasn't real effective. I wasn't totally engaged, you know, after it's hard to describe the, the adrenaline rush that you get coming into the ninth inning. And, um, once you taste it, man, it's, it's, it's hard to get geared up for anything else. And so for that spring training, I kind of got beaten around a little bit and I was, I had lost, uh, uh, 20 or 25 pounds, got down to about 205 and wow. was just trying to, um, you know, trying to get more athletic and see what that looked like and, and, uh, ended up working out better. I think I, I, I feel like I had a better year than I did the year before. Um, got hurt at the end of the, uh, towards the middle, end of August, gave up five runs and didn't get anybody out and blew my ERA up over almost a whole point one night. So, Oof. yeah. Huh. So I went, I went from like a one, three, I had a one, you know, had a, uh, low one most of the season until that point. So I feel like I was having a better year. A lot of guys talk about save situation versus non-save situation and how closers struggle when the game isn't as tight. Did you ever experience anything to that effect? And did you ever think of it as anything more than just baseball being baseball? I really, I, I struggled with it. I really did. After, after my rookie year, I, I struggled with non-safe situations. It, um, and again, it's the same thing. It's just, you don't have the adrenaline and, you know, so you're coming in and you're either getting a little bit of work or you're in a mop-up situation and it becomes, um, it, I, I hate, you hate to say it, but I've said it before. It becomes selfish. You know, I gotta, I gotta put my numbers up. I gotta make sure that I don't blow my ERA up on a night that doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. and um that's what it ended up becoming it became a very selfish outing of i got to get my work in don't screw up my whole season on a 10-run lead here you know in, in middle of june in cleveland but it, it could happen and it, it did happen it happened to me you know two or three times where i just totally not engaged walk walk you know, bloop single home run. Now you've given up three or four runs and you're going, well, there went that ERA. Right. <laughs> did you, did you feel like you worked better on short rest, no rest, long rest, somewhere in between, depending on the day? Um, you know, we, we see, uh, you know, closure doesn't work for five days and then they come into a 10 two game. Did you just prefer to just wait till the next save opportunity or, you know, did you like going three days in a row, getting hot and going in there? Or, you know, what was that like for you in terms of uh, bouncing back and durability factor? Another good question. Um, I, I, I was I was very durable, so I could I could bounce back. It was um, and this is one of those where every closer kind of needs to figure out what his body needs to do. Yep. And for me, it took me a year or two to realize that if I got to day four, I, w- I was going to be, I was going to be rusty. And so usually by day four, no matter what the situation was there, there I, w- I was asking to get into a game and, um, and, you know, even an, an out, two outs, whatever I could get just to get, just to kind of knock the rust off a little bit. And I wouldn't have to worry about it the next night or two nights later and just try to keep the pitch count down. And, and um, again, but it's walking into those situations where, you're not highly motivated and uh, you know that you're just kind of doing the yeoman's work of just kind of a, almost like a bullpen during a game. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Uh, before we let you go, I want to quickly run through 
a day in the life of a closer. Let's say you had a seven o'clock game. You played at seven o'clock the night before. So we'll just say it's like a Tuesday, Wednesday or something. If so, you always said it was kind of difficult to get to sleep after a night game. Um, I assume home road didn't change that a ton, but maybe I'm wrong. Maybe, maybe, you know, not having the kids or, or, or being at home in a comfortable bed made a difference. But um, let's start the night before. I mean, are you are you pouring yourself into bed about one, two o'clock to finally get a sleep, or or what's going on there? Um, if I pitched and the adrenaline was going, it was it was probably going to be closer to two o'clock. You know, okay. by the time I pitched, it was ten o'clock, ten thirty, and um, yeah, it's it's going to be at least two o'clock before my brain and and body and everything else is has quite kind of shut down. And so, you know, that was why you'll almost to a person, every major leaguer hates day games after night games, just because it's hard to get yourself to fall asleep. And then all of a sudden, you know, you're up at eight o'clock, which up at eight o'clock is normally really good. But when you're, you know, up till two o'clock or three o'clock or whatever it might be, it's, it's difficult to kind of get yourself moving. Um, for me, if it was a seven o'clock game, Home or road, I'm usually on my way to the ballpark at two, you know. So if it's a, like I said, night game, I'd probably try to sleep till 10 o'clock, 11, you know, 10 30, whatever, give myself eight hours and then go to lunch, you know, get a big lunch at 11 or 12, go to the ballpark at 1 30 or two, go get my, you know, go get my ankles taped walk around in a pair of sliding shorts and a t-shirt for two hours. Yep. Play cards, do some mail. Um, hang and play some more cards in about three thirty, quarter to four, put on some pants and a BP top and sit down for a little while longer and then go out to BP. And, and, um, my thing was, you know, I, I never stretched. So, while the team was stretching, I would be in whatever pose that they were in. So if they were sitting down, I'd be sitting down and not doing anything. Or if they were standing up and stretching their hamstrings, I'd stand there and not stretch my hamstrings. Um, and then go out for BP, play a little bit of catch, depending on what I needed that day. If I had thrown the night before, then it was going to be light. If I didn't throw the night before, but, you know, through two nights ago, then it was medium. And, and then, you know, by I hadn't thrown for a couple of days and it was going to be a heavy, heavy warm up and a little bit of long catch. And that was it, man. Then hang out for BP, do a little jogging. Sometimes I'd get there early depending on, you know, and get a little workout in on an elliptical or something or a treadmill. Did you ever look at the pitching matchup and be like, Ooh, this one could be close and I might have to mentally lock in. Or did you just let the situation come to you as the night went on? It was, it was too hard to lock in for nine innings. You know, the, yeah, it, was, it was fun during the playoffs because you could live and die by every, every you know, at bat yeah. and play, but that's what it was. But for 162 games, you just you, – you disengage for seven innings. You watch the game. You know, you pay attention to what some – you know, the hitters – their hitters are doing. You're rooting for your guys. Um you know, you might be talking through the game a little bit if you got a TV near you. You know, some bullpens will have a TV around it. 
And so, you know, you'll watch, just watch the hitters and then just see what they're doing and how they're swinging. And that's about all you can do. You can't, man, that's just too long, too many outs, too many ups and downs to be engaged for the full nine innings. Is that a hard adjustment to become a reliever from a starter that way? You know, I never really thought about that side of it. It was more about, you know, just being engaged every day. Um, I feel like if, the, if you grew up a baseball player, so most pitchers aren't just pitchers, they're shortstop, center fielder, whatever. You grow up playing every day. Then you go to college and maybe you play every Friday. Then you go to the big leagues and you play eh, maybe three games this week, maybe eight games this week, or not eight games, <laughs> uh, maybe four games this week, but not at the start of the game, it's at the end of the game. I feel like that that evolution from a person or player who plays every single day to that specialized of a role, to me, that just seems like it would be hard to get used to. It, I, I guess it was, you know, I moved straight from college, you know, basically high school. I did one year of sitting around and, and playing once a week mm-hmm. and it drove me nuts. So right. I, I like, I like waking up knowing, you know what, I got a chance to play today and whatever, how small a role that might be, it might be an out, it might be three innings. Who knew, you know, that was fun. It was better the starters, man, that's, I guess if you get used to it, you know, you can, you control the game that day. So I got, I got 20% of our games. I'm going to control that game. So if you look at it that way, that's kind of fun. It's just different. I wanted to come to the ballpark going, you know what? I can have an effect on the team today. Yep. The, the last thing I got for you is how did your physical prep and your mental prep differ for a, a an appearance? Because, um, you know, like physically, you know, you might do your running. You might, like you said, you didn't do your stretching, which uh, was surprising to me. I, maybe you go out and shag for uh, BP, or maybe you just stand out there and shoot the breeze and let other guys run after fly balls based on uh, maybe they're younger than you or something. But um, how, how, how did those things differ and how did that change throughout your career? How you prepared for any given game? Well, the, uh, we'll go mental side. Um, you know, when I talk about getting to the ballpark early, after my rookie year, um, I started really getting curious on how I faced guys. Mm-hmm. And so in the, my, my off season of my, after my rookie year going into 1990, I built this, um, I'll call it a web page for the lack of a better word, but it was a page that I could, you know, copy, paste, duplicate. And so I would put, you know, Kirby Puckett, and then I would go and watch last night's game that I pitched I would track the location of the pitch the sequence of the pitches what he did with it and then I'd make any notes that you know I saw you know um there were Dave Winfield would move in the batter's box back and forth Mm -hmm. and so I would make you know I'd make some notes and so I started doing that after my rookie year I went back and kind of remembered what I could of my rookie year and started doing that and so then when I get to the ballpark at about, I'd usually do it about, you know, 6.15, 6.30, grab a bite to eat. And then I would sit down in front of my computer and go through everybody on the team and, you know, in order of their at-bats that I had faced them and just remembered what, where to start, how to, you know, where to start, where to go when I'm behind, where to go when I'm ahead, you know, what, what I needed to do, where I needed to stay away from. 
And so that was my mental side of me just kind of running through of how I wanted to face guys. Mm-hmm. Um, the physical side, like I said, I'd get on a treadmill or elliptical, two thirty, three o'clock, do something, you know, do 20 or 30 minutes on that. And then we do some sort of a sprint jog during batting practice. The bullpen always did. And my, my arm care would be, you know, if I threw the night before, then it was going to be a light, light catch. It would, I just tried to always take it easy on my arm, get it loose enough that I'd have a little bit of a base if the phone rang quickly. Um, but I wouldn't want to work it too much of where, you know, I'm going to be taking some bullets out of my uh, ammunition. With the knowledge you've accumulated to this point and with where technology is at, do you think it would have changed much if you were closing right now? Um, I think I'd probably been using that bat system a little bit more of where, yep, yep. you know, he hits 220 on change ups on a one, two count. Some, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, they have stupid numbers and I think I would have been using that a lot more. Um, but I still relied on, I felt like my breaking ball was unique. I felt like my, uh, uh, they have, uh, the pitching ninja guy, the overlay with the fat, you know, the fastball, and the breaking ball overlay. Mm-hmm. I feel like I was unique with that. And so I couldn't sit there and go, you know, I remember it was, it was my rookie year and it what, went in and sat in, in um, Oakland and they were going through the scouting report and they go, okay, Mark McGuire, do not throw him a breaking ball. And I was like, well, I just eliminated half my repertoire. Then if I can't throw him a curveball, no kidding. You know, especially it, your curve. Yeah, and it ended up being the pitch that would get him out. Yeah, And so there was a lot of things where it's like, okay, you can't do this. And I was going, well, yeah, but I have to. And it ended up being effective for me. So right. I didn't spend a whole lot of time listening to the scouting reports. And I think I, think I would have used judiciously some of the new stuff. Yeah, that, you know, is can you get a guy out with your third best pitch or do you want to go your best against his best? I think that's a – part of the game people don't really think about. Um, I need you to promise me one thing. Can we have an entire episode on your brief time as a teammate of Kurt Schilling? Uh, you don't have to answer we, that. You know, I mean, what we're, you know, we were kind of messing with it last night on who we should have on. Wouldn't be a bad, uh, he was my first roommate. So we could have a conversation, see if he wants to come on. Uh, I don't know what he's doing now. He's not on Twitter. That's for sure. Um, that's all I got. He's in Tennessee. Today. They just moved. Oh, well, good for him. That sounds like a good spot for him. Again, uh, check out epare.com, uh, promo code 10T90BP10. That is a mouthful. Um, symbol.app, promo code Bender. Hinterland Coffee, three-star sports cards, humility chains. Check out our Patreon. Check us out on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Libsyn, Spotify. Give us five stars on Apple Podcasts. We still got to give away an autographed baseball. I, I, I believe I have a winner, but I have to notify them. But um, lots of fun stuff coming. We'll see what we talk about next week. But um, I had a great time with this one. I hope you did too. I did too. Great job again, Brandon. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for not only you joining, but for everybody listening to that 90s baseball pod powered by Access Twins. We'll see you next week. <laughs>